I'm in the stage flat right now. I'm in my room with a duvet over my head. I'm about to head off to see a show. I'm about to see Underground Railroad game at the Traverse, but I thought I'd say hi quickly and introduce some of the stuff that's coming up in this podcast. We haven't got a theme tune or anything, but I don't think we need one. Or do we? I don't know. Let me know. If you want to write one, I'll genuinely play it on here. Uh, But for now, we'll just sort of get straight into it. So this is a podcast from The Stage in association with Charcoal Blue, and it's all about theatre, specifically the Edinburgh Fringe, um, and specifically in 2018. So we've got a bit first where Lynn Gardner and I talk about some fringe shows we've seen with a special guest who uh, this week is Kate Wyver, who writes for The Guardian and for Fest. Uh, Then there's a bit where we talk to artists while trying to walk along the Royal Mile, which is called Eight Minute Mile. And it's very much like a mixture of Eight Mile, uh, the film with Eminem, and The Four Minute Mile by Roger Bannister. So um, that's going to be with the mighty Chris Thorpe and the incredible Rachel Chavkin. And then actor and writer Yolanda Mercy gives her tips on how to look after yourself at the Fringe, uh, where she gets particularly excited about uh, prawns and Asda. So that's in her letter to Edinburgh a bit later. And then finally, there's Gardner's Question Time. I know, it is a good title, which is your opportunity to put questions to Lynn Gardner. And they can be anything you like, so either tweet them to me or Lynn or The Stage or email them to tim at thestage.co.uk and we will ask them. That's all coming up later, but first, here's a little late-night chat over a cup of tea and biscuits and pink gin with Lynn. Actually, that's quite, maybe pink gin with Lynn should be a thing. Um, As well as Guardian theatre critic Kate Wyver about this year's Traverse offering. Yeah, I suppose, well, I don't don't, don't know, I don't know what I'm doing. So we're in the, we're in the Stage HQ and it's quite late on Monday, the 6th of August. And all three of us have been seeing shows for what seems like, well, months. Years. How can it only be the sixth of August? <laughs> I'm afraid it is, yeah. There's still 20, 20 days to go. I think we're all a little bit knackered already, aren't we? Yeah, no, no, I am quite knackered, actually. And I think I'm quite knackered uh, because I've seen some good stuff, but I certainly haven't seen anything that's really blown me away. How about you? How, how's your festival going? Are you knackered? I'm, I'm on about five coffees a day. Yeah, it's like quarter past ten and yes, you're going to a party, so... Yeah. Kate's suggestion, Lynn, was that we, we drink a shot for every show we talk about. Wouldn't that be brilliant? <laughs> See? But Kate doesn't have enough gin. So the, the kind of broad focus is going to be Traverse because, as you know, we know, the beginning of the festival tends to get dominated by Traverse in terms of critical discourse because there are the press days so you can go in and just see all the shows across two days but you know we'll talk about a few other things in there as well and particular highlights Kate what would you say your highlight from Travis 2 was? The moment um, when what's the actor in Coriolanus called? Irene Allen when Irene Allen drinks the luminous milk can you explain any of the context? (laughs) (sighs) to be honest I don't think it needs it but so she is uh, alone on the stage and she's telling this story about her relationships, but really the star is just the lighting. It's absolutely astonishing. Yeah. And then at one point she just brings out this glass of, I think it's milk, it might be water, but it's luminous. And then she drinks it and puts it back down and puts it back in the drawer and it's never mentioned. And it's just gorgeous. It's like that drink in Star Wars at the beginning of Star Wars. It's like luminous blue drink. 
Anyway, did you see Dory Lane's Mansion? Uh, it's the one thing in the trap season that I haven't seen that I'm going to go back and see later, a bit later in the festival. What was your highlight of Chambers so far? I mean, I've liked quite a lot. I really was, I was really interested in Underground Railway game. I thought that Cora Bissett's What Girls Are Made Of was just gorgeous yeah. and kind of giddy and so interesting to see that kind of story about a band being told from a female perspective. Yeah. Uh, when so, you say that kind of story? Well, I guess I'm, uh, I think there have been lots of stories or bio-musicals which are about bands, but they're always male-dominated. Yeah. So actually, it was just very interesting. And Cora Bissett knows how to use music brilliantly in theatre yeah. as well. Yes. Yeah. On the exhale. What was it about? It's a solo about an unnamed woman who is also a university professor and really lives for her son. And uh, her concern uh, right at the beginning of the play is the fact that there have been a number of uh, uh, shooting incidents on... That was me, um, sorry. It was yours. Yeah. Okay, I thought I'd turn mine off. Um, God, yeah. really, right. what a professional you are. It was just my mum as well. Is she alright? You make sure you leave this in. She's saying, I hope you had a fun day. Yeah. Love from dad too. There oh, we go. that's nice. Um, so, um, and, and her concern is that uh, because she has brought up her child single-handedly and uh, to a large extent has cut herself off from other people, what would happen uh, if there was a shooting on her campus and who would look after her son if she was killed? Uh, the thing that I found really powerful about this was the fact that being afraid of guns and being afraid of a school shooting is just a, an ever-present fear. Because, I mean, I remember a couple of years ago when I went to America for the first time and I was visiting my friend and we were in a cafe and a guy came in and he clearly had mental health uh, issues and was sort of shouting at the staff and he wasn't wearing any shoes and it was the middle of the day. And my friend was saying, well, we, should, we should get out, we should get out. And I was like, look, he's fine. He's, he's not violent or anything. He's just clearly, you know, not in a good place. But then my friend encouraged me to get out and he was like, it's because he might have a gun. Mm. And it's, it's something that, I mean, I hadn't really considered it because that, that threat of just such complete violence is pretty absent from our lives here. But when the teacher in the monologue's talking about every knock on the door of her office could be a, a fatal knock um, mm. and that she locks it to give her just an extra few seconds to assess who's on the other side of the door, mm. that, I found that pretty shocking. And there's an extraordinary moment, isn't there, right at the very beginning where she is faced with a disgruntled student yeah. and she wonders whether, in fact, uh, this uh, you know, might be the moment. And uh, there is an ambiguity about what is it that he has got potentially at the front of his trousers. Yeah. And there is a very strong kind of sense that, you know, that it might be his penis yeah. and it might be a gun. Or it might be nothing at all. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of thought that that was very interesting around that idea of kind of in particular kind of male violence and mm. violence by young, disaffected men. But then I thought that it went in quite a strange direction. Oh, I think it goes in an incredibly strange direction, yes. What happens? Uh-huh. Well, she buys a gun. Oh, but, well, I think we haven't explained, actually. Oh, yeah, and I think we do, and I don't think it spoils it for mm. anybody. But in fact, of course, it's not her that gets killed. It is her son. Who gets killed. So while she has been, I guess, imagining the unimaginable, what actually sort of happens is that uh, she has not imagined it's a different the kind unendurable. Of un- yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so does he get shot? 
he gets killed. Yeah, school yeah. shooter, and he gets killed, and it's a, it's a primary school. Yeah. And then she gets kind of obsessed with the weapon that killed him, this assault rifle, and she buys one, and she goes shooting and practices her aim, and it becomes this very strange relationship. And, and the, you know, the point's a good one. It's a really interesting one, a really powerful one, which is the, that these weapons just have like this a kind of fierce magnetism to them and the kind of total power of them. There's a really interesting moment when she talks about the gun mm. and it's like a child that it kind of completely demands her attention all her time and it won't let her kind of in a way rest. Uh, that it, So it becomes, I suppose, a kind of parallel that she has devoted her, chi- her life to this child who is now dead. Mm. It's a fabulous performance from Polly Frame, yeah. I thought, really good. And uh, I thought... Uh, beautiful design. Beautiful design, yes. Uh, it's a strip lighting, sort of broken strip lighting on the floor, which just very occasionally, just a couple of times, kind of lights up and sort of crackles. Uh, and they're all sort of scattered on the floor over each yeah. other. Just these, uh, these yeah. fluorescent tubes. Yeah, yeah, really beautiful. Yeah. Actually, yeah. But in the end, I guess as a portrait of grief, and I think that that's what it is, I never really feel moved by it. I'm not quite sure what point that it is making, other than terrible things happen, and guns guns have a magnetic fascination, and they're really bad. Yous are not found. So we've all seen this. Yeah, I love this. I loved it too. Yeah. I loved it too. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, Kate, you explain this one. So we're sitting in a cafe. Wait, hold on a second. Before we do that, would either of you like a biscuit? Yes, Well, can we have it and crunch it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, go on. Yeah. Dark chocolate digestive. Oh, perfect. Would you like a cup of tea as well? No, I'm fine, honestly. Do you want some gin? No. (laughs) (laughs) Just shout if you want some more water. Thank you very much. So, you've been found. Um, we are sitting in Julie, is that how you said? Julie, Julie Peace? Julie Peace? Ca- Julie Peace I mean, that's Cafe. how it's spelled. Okay, so we're sitting in Julie <laughs> Cafe. Like, everyone's given a phone and a headset, um, which at first feels like it could be quite isolating, but the cafe is very small, so we're all cramped in together. Um, and this phone, uh, this, uh, this voice starts talking in our ear, um, and it turns out that it's this guy sitting in the corner of the cafe called Terry. And uh, Terry is on his phone. But what he sees on his phone, we see on ours. And so he starts telling this story of, um, of finding out that his ex-boyfriend, Luca, has passed away. And that he has been left in charge of Luca's digital legacy. And it is just gorgeous. Except I think one of the things that's quite interesting is I think this is an example of something that doesn't really do what it says on the tin. Yeah. And actually, in fact, I think it's all the better for it. Yeah. I mean, it it, 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 it sort of suggests the publicity around it that it's going to be a a show about our digital legacies. And that's utterly fascinating, and I'd love to see a show about our digital legacies, but this is not it. Again, I think this is a show about grief, uh, and in fact, actually, how you deal with your own memories and your own resentments yeah. And yeah. about somebody. I, what I thought was amazing about it was how you're constantly being asked to switch between this like private world of, of looking at this smartphone that you're given with all these pictures on it that you're so familiar with, like WhatsApp and um, Facebook and this kind of stuff. Um, 
and it, you know, you just go into that zone that you always go into when you're looking at your phone or when you're on social media on your phone. But then, you know, the phone will go off or something else is happening in your ears and you're being forced to kind of re-enter this public space mm. with all these other people tightly squashed around you. And it's this constant building up and breaking down of this active community. At the end of ours, um, so the table we were tucked around, everyone just started talking to each other and sort of saying thank you to each other, even though we yeah. haven't really interacted during it. It just makes this real sense of community. It's so lovely. And Terry O'Donovan, who's the performer, he's one of the artistic directors of the company that made it as well, Dante or Die. What a performance. Mm. Just extraordinary. And funny enough, I've seen him in quite a lot of other things. And, and he's always been great, yeah. but I would not have believed that there could be, you know, a, a, quite a phenomenal performance yeah. like this. I mean, utterly, utterly heartbreaking. And there are yeah. moments where he's just being a bit snide or a bit sassy yeah. or whatever. And, and, you know, that's part of grief as well. Mm. What else is there? Uh, what else is there? Mm. So, Ulster American. Now, Lynn. Do you want to explain what this play is about, sort of some of the plot, and who's it by and that kind of thing? Okay, it's a play by uh, David Ireland uh, that people may know from, uh, in particular from Cypress Avenue, which was at the Royal Court in 2016 and also at the Abbey Theatre. This is a three-hander, and uh, which includes a female writer from Northern Ireland whose play about Ulster, she is uh, a Protestant, is about to be put on by an English theatre. And the three characters are Ruth, who is the Northern Irish playwright, who insists that she is British, even though her English director insists that she is Irish. And there is also a Hollywood actor, uh, one of those kind of old style uh, Hollywood actors with the, you know, tight jeans and a lot of swagger, uh, who has come over to play a character who he is under the uh, misapprehension is a uh, uh, IRA Catholic terrorist, but in fact actually um, is a Protestant. And uh, what we, what unfolds is a uh, satire. I suppose on cultural identity, on prejudices, on how we see ourselves and other too, and others too, uh, and I think also actually um, on the hypocrisies of those who have a liberal sensibility, and I think very particularly on theatre itself. I think the thing to really say about it is that um, it is shockingly funny. I thought it was fantastic. So, Kate, I know you didn't like it. I would have walked out if I could. I found it really troubling. That first 20 minutes where they are joking about rape, I I didn't... I, it's a really difficult one to talk about because it almost... I think you use the term critic-proof. Like, it, because it is about liberal sensibilities, if you then criticise its crudeness and its cruelty then it's so easy just to say oh yeah but you're just a snowflake and so your view doesn't is defined it does it preempts a lot of its own criticisms mm. yeah but i don't think that you can say all of these truly vile things that i didn't find funny and then say oh it's just a joke we know how awful it is to say that i don't think you can do that and get away with it. I think that scene is absolutely there for a reason. And uh, because as the scene goes on, it becomes more and more shocking because of the fact of what it reveals, uh, particularly with the character of Lee, the theatre director. I think it's absolutely completely justified. I really, really do. Uh, and I think that actually 
there is a real danger when people turn around and say that they are uh, offended by something. Because Mary Whitehouse, for example, was offended by the Romans in Britain and tried to take out a private prosecution against it. I can absolutely understand why people might find it distressing, but um, I don't think that that uh, means that the playwright doesn't have a right to show those characters but in that okay way. It's okay to be offended by something, but you're not trying to shut it down for everyone else. You're just saying you personally I find think, it. Yeah, but I think it's a kind of, I think it's a really slippery slope because I think, you know, particularly that we live in a culture around issues of free speech where people turn around and say, I am offended by this, that Charlie Hebdo cartoons, you know, offend me. And what that potentially leads to is a, a you know, a shutting down of free speech. In this particular instance, it concerns me when critics are saying, I find this kind of offensive, when in fact, actually, it seems to me that it's completely within the context of the characters. And actually, I think it's a really, really important comment on Me Too. In fact, probably one of the strongest shows that I've seen that actually is addressing that. Yeah. That's so fascinating, because I just thought it, it took the obvious answers from Me Too and chucked them all in, the way that it kind of uh, falls into this ridiculous, very violent satire at the end. I just, it, it felt too easy. To but me. again, it set that up all along the way because she is desperate to get her play turned into a movie by Quentin Tarantino. And that, of course, is where actually the play leads. I do understand that. I think he could have written that play in a way that I would have found hilarious and so smart and a really intelligent comment on Me Too. But the way that it was... I felt like it demeaned sexual violence. I wanted to leave. And I just didn't find any of it funny. It, you know, it is a big, broad comedy in a lot of ways. It and is. And you can write good characters. And I and get that when everyone's laughing, it's a kind of guffaw. Like, it's it's a, oh my God, I can't believe it's saying that. Shock laugh, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. I, I, think it, I think it gives the audience permission to laugh at these things. I, I, don't, I thoroughly disagree, because I think actually what it's doing is that... Um, it's uh, making the audience, and it knows largely who its audience will be, and actually it is putting them really on the spot. That's really interesting, because I feel like it lets them off the hook. Right. Especially by, at the end, um, I won't say how it ends, but uh, in the sort of gender power switch, I feel like that is covering up for a lot of what has said before, and... Um, it's like, yeah, go women at the end, which just feels entirely fake. Oh, you see, again, not for me at all, because I actually thought that she was such an incredibly strong character all the way through. Uh, and in the end, of course, uh, she is absolutely the person who, in more ways than one, this is a show in which it turns out that the pen is mightier than the sword. If a woman had written that, mm. would your response be the same, Kate? It would probably feel different, yeah. yeah. Yeah, probably because it's written by a man, you associate some of these views with him, mm. and it, it, it feels like he's incredibly powerful in that. Whereas I think if a woman had written it, I maybe would have felt there was some kind of protection or support or that it would have gone to a place that would make me understand why it used that. Whereas actually it just made me cry. <laughs> would you read the play? Yeah, yeah. And I can choose when to put it down. So one of the issues you raised as well was whether it came with enough of a trigger warning. Mm. 
did did it in your well, so it had a bed there was a sign at the top that I missed but um I so I knew it had strong language but I didn't know anything else if I had been prepared then yeah I probably would have felt very different so that's that one uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure we really <laughs> no but it's good to disagree yeah I, I think we solved it actually hmm so. Well, we talked about Coriolanus Vanishes by David Leddy, What Girls Are Made Of by Cora Bissett, Use Are Not Found by Chris Good, On the Exhale by Martine Zimmerman, and Ulster American by David Eyelid. They're all at the Traverse till the end of August. Uh, Kate Wyver stuck around to pose a few questions to Lynn, so the two of them will be back with me for Gardener's Question Time in a bit. Um, for some reason, I thought it would be fun to talk to Chris Thorpe and Rachel Chavkin on the Royal Mile, but it was actually quite stressful. Uh, Chris has written loads of incredible shows like I Wish I Was Lonely and Victory Condition. A few years back, he made Confirmation with Rachel, all about the idea of confirmation bias. Rachel, in the meantime, directed the Broadway musical Natasha, Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, which was based on War and Peace, and had Josh Groban in it. Uh, so we met at the Pizza Express on Georgia Fourth Bridge and just sort of dived in. Brilliant, let's set off. So, um... This is your second collaboration. Just give me the kind of spark for the show. Where, where did it come from? Um, it's tremendously distracting being on the Royal Martin, isn't it? <laughs> this is like some kind of weird astronaut training where they, they launch you into space, but they simultaneously show you, I don't know, pictures of cats doing weird shit. That's what we're going to try and distract you from all the buttons that you actually need to press. Um, so I guess one of the things that kind of lingered after we'd made confirmation was just an idea about nations and nationhood. And actually, initially, the starting point for the show was very, very different to where the show has ended up. We okay. started off, I became really fascinated with the uh, story of Daniel Ellsberg. He was the guy who leaked the Pentagon Papers, yeah. which revealed the kind of decades of um, refusal on the part of successive US administrations to admit to themselves and to the country the mistakes, they, the repeated mistakes they were making in Vietnam that prolonged that war. And that was that started a whole conversation about what it means to betray your country and what national values are and what it means to go against the grain of that and how uh, what can be seen by the prevailing power structures as betrayal can actually be it, certainly in his case one of the most most patriotic things you can do so that led us to start thinking about patriotism and to start thinking about the impulse that I have to walk away from that this characterization of national values it's certainly in in Britain as essentially a fascist project you know people do go that far when they talk about it quite quickly I think allows people like me and when I say people like me I mean people who have the privilege of being white male uh, who are largely kind of liberal in their outlook on the world to kind of perform this kind of self-absolution where you kind of say well any talk about that is inherently not useful so I can walk away from it and of course I can walk away from it you know pretty much the world is arranged so I can walk away from whatever the fuck I like and as we were making this show very dark and fascinating things started to happen in both of our countries. Well, there were, yeah, there were the know. elections of 2016, first the Brexit election and then the election of President Trump in the United States. So that yeah. put a very distinct spin on the conversations around national value. Inevitably, that's 
what the show is. What you putting There's out. a musical called the the Brexit musical. A very Brexit, a very musical. Brexit musical. Maybe so, we should talk to them. Hiya, how are you doing? What are, could you give us some of the titles of the songs from a very Brexit musical? So there's a Brexit chorus, which is like kind of one of our, you know, headliners. It's good fun. Great. It's good fun. And tonight it's two for one tickets. Brilliant. Yeah. All right. Thank you very Thank much. You. Cheers. All right. Have a lovely one. So, yeah, you um, too. Because, well, Status is a bit of a musical as well. Uh, yes, it is. And Rachel, you've got form with musicals. So, I mean, particularly, obviously, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet. Yeah, Tell about me about the difference it. in just directing something like Status compared to Natasha Pierre <laughs> in terms of scale. So, you go from a Broadway show oh. to a one-man piece at, at some point. Yeah. I would say the way I approach the show is always just how do I make it the right production for this context. Yeah. And so for Comet, actually, I mean, Comet began in an 87-seat yeah. space. Um, so a smaller, actually a smaller room than we're currently performing <laughs> status in. So you say status? Uh, yeah, American, I would say status. But Chris, do you say status? Yeah. Have you not, yeah. like, unified your marketing on that? Thank nope. you very much. <laughs> no, that's the whole point. National values. My national value is... Right, okay. So, obviously, Rachel, you're from the States, and Chris, you're from... Oh, thanks, mate. You're from the UK. What... I mean, this is a bit of a blunt question, but what unites you in terms of nationality, nationhood? I've just uh, been handed a flyer. Fugazi. Fugazi. <laughs> Uh, I've just been handed a flyer for a show called The Fresh Prince of Healthcare. It sounds brilliant. Sounds like we could use that actually in my country. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, there's very, there's a lot of overlaps, obviously, culturally speaking, although there's a lot of jokes that I tried to cut from status that I didn't get. There's a joke about, and I'm not going to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen the show, because it's a really good punchline. <laughs> it's like the first really good punchline in the show. And even if I fuck up everything else, I deliver it incredibly well, consistently. But there's a joke about a um, popular British situation comedy in it that Rachel tried to cut. She was like, no one will get that. I thought kind of, it was a Serbian show. Yeah, she, she you thought, thought it was Serbian? Yeah. What, what evidence did you have? Well, the story, the context of it is, is the, uh, it's in a story about Serbia, but it's, uh, anyway. What would you say your nationality is? Oh, my nationality is definitely American. Uh, my dad was asking whether I felt like he could relinquish that national identity. And I, for me, I think the answer is no. I think it is a matter of nurture versus nature, but I think it's so, I experience it as so deep uh, in terms of every way I navigate a situation and certainly white privilege coming along with American privilege. All of that is, I think, something that I don't, I don't have any say about whether I divorce myself from it or not, whether in terms of how the world perceives me. Chris, do you see yourself as British, as English? Yeah, I see myself as British. I mean, I, I mean, for, for similar reasons to the ones that Rachel's just um, explained, I, 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 have a, I have an inbuilt resistance to embracing that about myself because it requires uh, the, it requires you to admit kind of uncomfortable truths about yourself. But I think not seeing yourself as British, taking not being British as a political position when you hold a British passport, when you are deeply embedded in your country and its structures and the way it works, I don't see that as a tenable position. I also don't see it as necessarily 
having to involve support for Britain it as it's currently constituted so I'm British I recognize the arbitrary nature of any nationality and its impositional nature and I'm not proud of it I'm not not proud of it but I accept its reality um, so we've can just we find a boyfriend can we help you find a boyfriend yeah all them find boyfriends it's actually about them it's not are you having fun? Is it going I am right? having fun, except I do feel like I've lost a lot of my dignity asking people to first thing. Two for one today and tomorrow. You've got three weeks to find one, I hope it works. Yeah. So, we stopped there for a minute because it was getting quite tricky to navigate, but we're on the move again. There were knives in the air, actually, so that it didn't feel good. That's, is that metaphorical, Rachel? Is that how you <laughs> feel when you're in this town? No, I feel about the Royal Mile, anyway. Rachel, how yes. did you come across um oh my god like a like a little rock in the in the sand um <laughs> so do you want to hear the actual real story yeah, well we have so i've got stories. a younger brother who was um i'm one of three brothers so there's me my brother who still lives in the town we grew up in a much younger one and when he was uh god he must have been 19 he, he basically ran away he disappeared for three years and ended up in New He's a he's an electrician None in New York. None of this is true. <laughs> just to Are you just making that up? Yeah, yeah, all of this. Oh, there was a whole bullshit. load of places we were going to go where he oh, ended that's up. That's impressive. That your, I could have let it go on. I've only got one. Yeah, thanks for that, Rachel. Um, he was really drawing me in as well. It probably would have been good, actually. Yeah. And illuminating about my husband. Um, you got the next show sorted, then. Yeah, yeah, it's good. No, go on. Chris will bullshit for you while <laughs> half dancing. But I really remember meeting Chris for the first time in Scarborough in 2009. Yeah, we met at the National Student Drama bar, Festival. But in 2005. I believe you. Yeah, yeah. I just don't remember it. No. Oh, uh, no. And so how did you end up working together? Um, I saw the Oh Fuck moment, which Chris did with Hannah Walker in 2011. The team was back doing Mission Drift at that time. And I thought it was just beautiful. And so we ended up hanging out quite a lot that summer. Um, and he asked if I wanted to work with him. And then... Towards the end of that process, I found out we were making a trilogy. So then I had to show up for the next one. Well, this is it. So it's a trilogy. But have you actually written and created the third one? Yeah. No. No. <laughs> so that's kind of uh, ambitious, isn't it? Um, it's logistically ambitious, given the, given the amount of time. The, the, given that we live on different continents and we're both... I mean, particularly Rachel, where you? I would say both of us are insane multitaskers. We've actually made it to roughly the end point. Is this the end of the mile? We're around uh, Hunter Square, all so... All right, I'll take yeah. that. Do you know what? I actually found that a lot more stressful than I thought I would. You seemed very focused. Thanks, Rachel. You're welcome. Yeah. I think it's incredible, though. It allows you... It's a really good way of interrogating whether you actually know what you're talking about. <laughs> but put you in a massively distracting environment and expect you to make sense it's a really good litmus test of whether someone's thought about something thanks for validating the form yeah welcome. where's the show when is it it's at 7.55 p.m. also known as 19 5 to 8 5 to 8 although people who aren't first language English speakers have got confused when I've said that because they think the show's three hours long I say 5 to 8 and then someone said to me that it's three hours summer long. hall in the yeah. evening yeah shortly before 8 p.m. <laughs> I saw uh, status or status yesterday and it's brilliant um, I'm seriously in love with Chris Thorpe's writing 
He swears quite a lot though, doesn't he? Anyway, here's Yolanda Mercy with a little letter to Edinburgh all about self-care and well-being at the Fringe. So, Edinburgh Fringe, it can be a rewarding place, it can be a challenging experience, some people love it, some people hate it, it just depends on you as a person. It's overwhelming, it really is overwhelming. So I spent a lot of time thinking about ways to look after yourself. So I remember I wrote this tweet, it just came into my head on the 27th of July. I'm like, July 27, 2018, the day my world changed. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so I said, going to Edinburgh Fringe can be exciting, nerve-wracking and life-changing experience. Recently, I've been asked by artists for tips on surviving the Fringe. So see below and please add yours too. Let's find ways to support the well-being of others at Edinburgh Fringe 2018. So one of the things for me was get a lot of sleep. Getting a lot of sleep is so important. I've got to do the show every single day. I've got to give the same amount of energy every single day. Not just because people think, oh, there might be someone like industry in there or whatever it is, but also because people have given up their time, their money to come and see you on stage. They want to see the best version of you on that stage. Uh, so I would basically be like, right, nine o'clock, I'm going to start shutting down. I'm not going to open my laptop. I start literally winding down and I would have a lovely like eight, 10 hours worth of sleep and I felt great. The other thing that I also had to start thinking about is reviews. <sighs> wow, that's a huge thing for many, many people. So maybe ask your parent or someone you really trust and also the people I worked with were able to pull quotes like the director or like friends or whatever would help me pull quotes. But whoever it is to you, that can be your best friend or your neighbor or whoever it is, someone you can trust to go through your reviews and take the things you need to put them on your poster. I wouldn't read your reviews during your fringe run because it can really affect your performance. Um, I did accidentally fell into the trap of reading one once and it really affected like whenever I do a section in the play that was mentioned I'll be like oh and you also don't want to be like oh people love this bit I'm gonna overly exaggerate the section the hardest thing is just not to read them oh my goodness let me tell you about a treat day a treat day is so important because actually you are working Edinburgh Fringe is actually your job your treat day is something where you, you treat yourself to whatever it is for me my treats tend to be food so I would go to George Square and I'd love to name the place but I can't remember it it was like a fish and chips place do you know what I'm talking about so literally it's by assembly you know the entrance of assembly it's by this I think it's the assembly box office and there's like fish and chips oh okay so when you see them freshly cook that fish get it then because the fish is so crispy but also delicate at the same time and the chips and sometimes i even treated myself to little prawns oh and i had a coca-cola as well i was so happy on my treat day or even like a really nice treat is like i'm gonna get an uber to work today that was like the best thing ever when you're like i can't remember what everyone called it but there's a period where every performer you feel this this feeling of like she gets to this little slump so at that point i'm not saying just uber you can get any kind of cab company whoever you prefer get a cab to work factor in i would say like three cute little cab journeys during your time at the fringe bar the one from the station because the station is far because the hill that hill situation was really upsetting <laughs> with all your stuff and actually also if you can also if you can i, was trying, I lost my train i thought i was thinking about uber <laughs> i was like i was thinking about that beautiful uber oh so 
even though you as an artist are like, oh, I'm struggling, it's really hard. If you're feeling that way, your tech team must be feeling twice as hard because they're not only working on your show, they're working on loads of other shows. Buy them a coffee. Because when you speak to them, they're like, oh yeah, I've been in here for like eight hours. And you're like, eight hours, no sunlight. So the next one was day off. The day off is so important. Go down into the old town, go and get massage if you can. Anyway, so this is a major life hack. So come closer, come closer. If you're on the headphones, turn this up because not everyone can know about this. Pre-order your food. I went online in London and I ordered the things that I needed from Asda. I ordered toilet roll in advance. I ordered the cleaning products. So you'd have to go around and be like, I need to clean my flat. Your flat's gonna be clean because you've got your products. I ordered juice, I ordered eggs. I ordered all of the things that you might need, some bread, anything to keep you going. I would say about enough for about a week. And they deliver it and it's free. Like I'm gonna say it again, they deliver it for free. So get your food to your flat because the flat I was staying in was on the fourth floor and there was no lift. So when you are going up to Edinburgh Fringe, think about your well-being. But I think it's a great time and have fun and look after yourself and look after your fellow artists. And when I say artists, I don't just mean like actors, writers, directors, I mean also the tech team, the ushers who are there, the whole support system, look after everyone. Um, right, questions, questions for Lynn. So Did God we get any? We did, we got loads. So many. Oh, right. We got loads. Um, so it's gardener's question time. Uh, so if you've come to find out how to prune your dahlias, then it's probably <laughs> the wrong thing. It's Lynn Gardener's question time. So to start off with, this is from Amy Jane Smith on Twitter. What are your standout productions from all the years you've been going to the Fringe? <gasps> Goodness. Um, I wipe them after every year. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, my brain wouldn't be able to. It's too full of shows. Yes. No, uh, I, I mean, I guess um, uh, the very obvious ones often are, in fact, the shows, of course, that went on to become enormous successes. I remember the sheer excitement of seeing Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea by 1927, mm. uh, you know, in a small venue with, you know, almost nobody in the audience. The other one uh, was, of course, the original production of Disco Pigs. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, that which was incredible. Was, yeah. Uh, which, uh, again, just that real sense that you're seeing something that uh, you sort of know this is going to take the world. Oh, well, and, and, you know, there are other shows, things like Bryony Kimming's Sex Idiot, you know, and to be there again in a, with an audience yeah. in a small venue where actually at one point she suggests that the audience should cut their own pubic hair and give it to her. <laughs> and, you know, middle-aged people do. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of those only at the fringe moments. What am I doing? Um, is there a theme emerging this year from the Edinburgh Fringe? Is there a theme emerging? Well, funnily enough, I do feel I've slightly been stalked by death. And <laughs> there are lots and lots of shows about death and about grief. Yeah. Uh, mm. And um, and I sort of think, you know, is this because we're in the end days? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Let's find this something a bit more cheerful after that. Um, do you have a question, Kate, for, for Lynn? Where is your favourite place to eat at the Fringe? In my own room. <laughs> <laughs> I hardly ever eat. Out. Do you cook? I open a 
packet of soup and put some vegetables in the microwave. (laughs) (laughs) No, (laughs) I don't really uh, uh, cook, but I eat a lot on the run. I eat a lot of ice cream, John the French. (laughs) Yeah, because you can eat it while you're walking along. What's your favourite ice cream? Oh, I like any kind of ice cream. I would, yeah, I'd like, if I had to choose desert island food, ice cream. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think would probably be uh, there. How much sleep do you get? Not enough, <laughs> but that would be true of anybody. But it's not because I'm out partying. It's really not. Uh, Are you sure? Yeah, I mean, I often, I frequently in Edinburgh would might set the alarm for like about five o'clock in the morning oh uh, and get up and. That's and when Kate's planning to get in this morning. <laughs> yeah. I, but I, I don't five. take naps. <laughs> I am finding that I'm having more naps here than I ever have anywhere yeah. else. Yeah. I can't do naps. I just sleep for no. three hours and then feel horrible. Okay, this one is from Zoo Company on Twitter, and the question is, how has Ed Fringe's focus on accessibility for D-deaf and disabled audiences impacted the quality of the work you've seen this year? But I think a more interesting question, sorry Zoo Company, (laughs) is have you seen more of a focus on accessibility for D-deaf and disabled work? Uh, So far, in terms of what it is that I have seen, I would say no. From what Um, you're aware of? that's being made and accessible performances, relaxed performances, signed performances, are you, do you get the sense that there's more? Well, I think there increasingly have been over the last few years. So I think it's something that we're seeing a kind of growing trend of. Uh, but no, it's not kind of widespread. Final question, and this comes from uh, stage reviewer Fergus Morgan on Twitter. <laughs> And he says... The, the dark and bitter Fergus Morgan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> dark and bitter Fergus Morgan. Being dark and bitter, he says, one of my flatmates at the Fringe is really getting on my goat. He brings the whole mood of the flat down. <laughs> what can I do to get rid of him? <laughs> do you have any advice for Fergus? <laughs> <laughs> Who could he be referring to, Tim? <laughs> Well, I think it might be Fergus who has to move. <laughs> I certainly hope so, yeah. There we go. That's quite enough for this week. Uh, the next episode will be out on Thursday, the 16th of August. Uh, keep checking the stage website for hundreds of Edinburgh reviews and features, plus daily columns from Lynn Gardner. And I'll be back in a week with more guests, including the brilliant actor and writer Helen Monks, who you might recognise from Raised by Wolves and Upstart Crow on the telly, and anyone else I happen to bump into around town. There'll be more hard-hitting questions to Lynn Gardner, and you'll find out if Fergus Morgan succeeds in getting rid of me from the stage flat, although what he doesn't know is that I've been eating the nice hummus he bought from Co-op, so either way, I'll have the last laugh, really. Uh, you can get in touch with me on Twitter or email me, uh, tim at thestage.co.uk. For now, though, thanks again to our sponsor, Charcoal Blue. Find out more about the work they do at charcoalblue.com, and I'll see you next week. Bye!